Welcome to Breaking Through, the podcast that explores the breakthroughs teams are making every day at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm Madeline Bell, the hospital's president and CEO. Today's episode is part of my new Breaking Through mini-series, Women Leading the Way. In this mini-series, you'll meet some of CHOP's amazing women scientists and hear about the remarkable breakthroughs they're making. You'll also learn about an exciting group of programs at CHOP that we call Frontier Programs. We started the Frontier Programs initiative in 2015 to fast-track our scientists' most innovative ideas. Many of our Frontier Programs have made important breakthroughs, and my guests will share the stories behind some of these breakthroughs with you. My guest today is Dr. Denise Adams. Dr. Adams is a hematologist and oncologist, and she joined the CHOP team in 2020. She is the co-director of one of CHOP's newest frontier programs, the Comprehensive Vascular Anomalies Program. Dr. Adams, welcome to Breaking Through. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here to talk about our program and what we do and how we got to where we are today. So I guess before we get into the details, why don't you tell the audience what is a vascular anomaly? Vascular anomalies are a broad term for tumors and malformations that involve blood vessels. So tumors are things that grow and proliferate. And patients can have those tumors at a very young age. One of the most common tumors is something called a hemangioma. And a hemangioma is like what we call a strawberry birthmark. Well, a strawberry birthmark can be very small, but a strawberry birthmark can also involve your whole face, or it can involve your lungs, or it can involve your liver. So there's different degrees of how severe those tumors can be. Malformations are made up of abnormalities of the blood vessels, capillaries, lymphatics, veins, and arteries. So when those malformations happen, there are extra vessels that are there, and they can cause masses, they can cause bony destruction, they can cause significant pain, or those vessels can leak and you actually can have weeping of your skin. So they can be simple, but they also can be very complex and life-threatening. How many children does this affect? So that's an interesting question because we do not have true incidence and prevalence of these disorders. We can't lump them all together. So I can say this is an umbrella term, vascular anomalies. Hemangiomas as a tumor is probably the most common tumor of infancy and can happen in 20% of infants. But all of those other malformations are extremely rare, especially when they're more significant. So that's what we're doing now. We're trying to form registries so we can really understand what the incidence and prevalence of these individual disorders are. Are most of the patients that come to see you, are they babies or how old are they? Well, they're all different ages. Some of them present congenitally, but some of them don't. These are rare diseases, so a lot of them have been misdiagnosed. So they've been going from doctor to doctor. So we have 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds that have misdiagnoses still to this day. Now with the advent of the internet, they find that we have a center here and they want to come and see us. So it's very hard because we span the spectrum of ages, which is why now we're trying to have some collaboration with our adult counterpart with Penn to help take care of these patients. And why did you decide to specialize in this really specific area? I was a fellow at Duke. 
I'm an oncologist by trade. So when I was in our clinic, I had a clinic the same day as a dermatologist. And he kept sending patients to our clinic that had vascular anomalies. And he wanted them diagnosed and treated with medicines. And I happened to be the person that kept picking up those patients. So I became an quote-unquote expert when I was a fellow. And then I sought out expertise from other centers, and that's how I became a vascular anomalist, sort of a new term we have now. That's a really interesting story. Let's back up to earlier in your life. What inspired you to pursue a career in science? I always loved science. When I was in biology, I used to take my frog dissections home to my dad. And he encouraged me. I was the oldest of six kids, five girls, and he encouraged me to pursue my dreams. So I actually went to nursing school first. I started taking some pre-med courses because I worked at a free clinic in the Washington, D.C. area, and a physician there encouraged me to be a physician. That's a great story. Do you have any role models or mentors that really helped shape you and your career? There's two people. One is a hematologist at Duke who encouraged me to assess what the hospital-wide impact of this tiny program was that we were building at Duke. And it was an amazing learning experience for a person that had no business skills. And we showed that hospital that this program was going to be successful, and it enabled us to expand. And then the next mentor in vascular anomalies was a plastic surgeon who was at Boston who I called him when I was an oncology fellow, and he said to me, who are you? And I said, I'm a pediatric oncologist. I really think that I will be worth your while because we need medicines for this field. And he took me under his wing. I love that example that sets for other women. Since you are a successful physician scientist and a woman, what advice do you give to women who are aspiring to be a scientist or a physician? The biggest thing that I tell people is to do what you love. And it's okay to change your mind and do something else and be persistent. Great advice. Really great advice. So you probably heard advice throughout your career, and you talked about some of your mentors. Is there one nugget of advice, pearl of wisdom, that had been passed on to you that you'd like to pass on to our audience? What really pushed me forward was advice that I got that was somewhat negative advice. A clinician said to me, you will never be able to have this be a part of your career. And I said, that is not true. And it made me even more determined to do what I was doing in vascular anomalies. That's great. How about strategies that you've used that have helped you balance your work and your personal life? Tell our listeners what advice you might have for them? Your expectations need to be there, but maybe your expectations are different than other people that you're working with. And so I think you need to be mindful of that and clear on what the overall goals are and communicate that. And let's go to your research. What kinds of questions do you hope to answer with your research? So there are many, many different rare diseases that are under that umbrella term, vascular anomalies. And they were mainly treated with surgery and intervention. So we can now use drugs that we use in cancer, but we don't need to use them at as high of a dose. 
We need more information on why these medicines are working and will they work for every phenotype of a vascular anomaly. So many, many questions that are still left unanswered. And I'm wondering if you are working with physicians who are diagnosing children in utero, and is that something that you're involved in? We are a critical part of the fetal service here because a lot of these are diagnosed in utero, not all of them, but some of them are diagnosed in utero. And the question is whether you can treat a mother with medicines to help some of those. We're not quite there yet. We need to make sure that the research is there before we use investigational medicines, but that's exactly where we're going. As you look ahead in the next few years, what are you most excited about, not just in what you're doing, but in pediatric healthcare in general? I am most excited about all the new discoveries in everything, in oncology, in other diagnoses in pediatrics, with the advent of all the genomic information. I'm also excited about our focus on disparities, because I think health disparities has been a big issue, particularly when you take care of rare diseases. And I think we're getting there where hopefully that will not be as much of an issue as it is today. How has philanthropy made a difference for your work? Philanthropy is incredibly important for our work. So we deal with rare diseases. We deal with a rare disease that doesn't really have a home yet in the NIH spectrum of diseases. We're working on it. So philanthropic funding has been so important and it has enabled us to do things. Like here at CHOP, we have a vascular anomaly consortium. So the only vascular anomaly consortium in the United States, and we have 22 sites that's a part of that. Philanthropic funds have helped us with that. So it is key to what we are doing right now. I always like to close by asking my guests about their personal breakthroughs in their career. And so, Dr. Adams, could you tell me about the biggest breakthrough moment for you? It was in another hospital where a patient came in with a rare tumor, and we got our first medicine. I'll bring it to a patient now who we had here at CHOP with the same diagnosis, who actually had a surgical procedure by one of the partners that I work with, and they wanted to use the sample to help us find the mechanisms of why this tumor happens. So how amazing is that to, you know, to have our patients know what the history and what the story is and want to help us really figure out the next steps? That's great. That's all the time we have for today. Dr. Adams, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. To find out how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. To learn more about how our teams are transforming the future of healthcare, please visit innovation.chop.edu. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening.